This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely and control vehicle at all times. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Although we've only got four uh, games left and they've got five games left, that's a long way to go yet at this stage of the season. So it's uh, all for play for still? I think so. Do you want to bet against us? When I go home late at night, this is a song that I really like to sing right now, so I'll play it for you. It's uh, called My Old Man. to adventure down the left. There's a good ball played in for Tony Morley. Oh, he has it! It is! Welcome to the My Old Man Said podcast. I'm David Michael, the editor of MyOldManSaid.com. And this show, episode 60, is a standalone show where I take you back to what most Villa fans will consider as the golden era, where we came out of nowhere in the late 70s to pick up a few League Cups and dent Liverpool's run on winning league titles by uh, winning an unlikely league title after the first time uh, in over 70 years before going on to win the European Cup in 1982. And the reason why we are looking back to this period is this show is an interview with author Richard Sydenham about his recent book, Ticket to the Moon, Aston Villa, The Rise and Fall of a European Champion. And Richard's spoken to pretty much everybody involved during this period of the late 70s uh, running through to the 80s. The fascinating uh, through line of the book is essentially how do you go from European champions to uh, getting relegated within a just short five-year period. So uh, in the interview, like the book, we talk about Ron Saunders, Tony Barton, Graham Turner, Billy McNeil, through to Graham Taylor and all the personalities and players involved uh, during that time. We also talk about the making of the book and how Richard got it together. I mean, he had access to the boardroom uh, notes and memos, etc., which uh, really makes it canon in terms of that period of Aston Villa. And if you haven't read it already, I mean, I'm sure by the end of this podcast, uh, you'll no doubt be uh, interested in buying it. 
because it's uh, in terms of Villa reads. There's a few sketchy ones out there. There's a few good ones, and uh, this is definitely in the uh, the very good pile. Before we go on, uh, going into the new year, it would be great to actually do more uh, on location interviews. Obviously, they come with uh, you know a lot more organisation and costs, travel costs, and time. This is one of the things that. Uh, are only possible due to the My Man Said patrons. So if you've been considering becoming a patron, it would be great uh, timing to actually sign up for the new year. For more details, please go to myomansaid.com and uh, click on the Patreon option. If you're on a mobile device, it's the, the square button with three lines, uh, the menu button, uh, and you'll find it on there. We will do uh, the shout-out for all the patrons that have signed up in the last couple of weeks on the next proper show, which will be in the new year. So now, on to the interview which takes place in the Plough, uh, the pub in Harburn, if you're not familiar with it, which incidentally Richard met Gary Shaw and Gary Thompson in there while he was compiling his book by interviewing all the, the relevant players of the era. So, until next time, enjoy. So joining me today to talk about his uh, new book, Ticket to the Moon, Aston Villa, The Rise and Fall of a European Champion, is the author of the book, Richard Sidnam. Thanks for having me. Not a problem, but just let's take it from the start. You've obviously written a few books, including Kirkley Ambrose's biography, a book about Steve McQueen, and obviously being a Villa fan, uh, is it fourth generation? or? Uh, I'm the third, third that generation. I know of. My son's the fourth. <laughs> <laughs> so did you ever have the inclination to do a Villa book, or you know, what was the spark to actually... Uh, Let's well, say cement the idea. Yeah, um, well, I've always been a Villa fan from childhood. Um, eventually, when I became a journalist in the mid '90s, I was writing on Villa then, as well as cricket. Um, my career took me more towards cricket, but that love and passion for Aston Villa always remained. Um, so, f- were you covering games or? Yeah, I used to cover games. I, I worked for a few local papers like the Sunday Mercury and uh, Metro News in the mid 90s when I was a bit of a rookie. I'd cover games, and the Dwight, Dwight York was my first interview. So, oh, right. we'll come back to that one if yeah. you want. <laughs> but uh, I, I suppose when I'd written a few Villa books, in the Steve McQueen book, as you mentioned, and I enjoy writing books and I thought, you know what, the more I spoke to guys from that 1982 era, how that European, how you can go from being European champions to relegated five years later, I just thought it was a great story. Yeah. And the more I looked into it, I saw it was a bit of a rise and fall journey, the way that Doug Ellis and then Ron Saunders came in and picked Villa from the doldrums and won a couple of League Cups, the League, European Cup and relegation. Meet a lot of the players through. Is it Big Star? Big Star Creations is my uh, company, but I met a lot of the players pre that company really. When I was uh, more of a football journalist, when I used to do football and cricket journalism together, so I knew I knew a few players and a few of the players I I kind of rang up and and got to know in the making of the book. People like Warren Aspinall and Martin Keown I'd never spoken to before before doing this book but other guys particularly from the 81-82 team I I did go back some years with. Did you you try to (laughs) off topic a little bit but did you try to track down Simon Stainrod? Um, I forgot he scored briefly, uh, <laughs> but I didn't feel his contribution was that important to the book. But he actually really, but, scored um, uh, one season. He 
I was looking through the stats and I was like, fucking hell, when did he score? He's like 20 goals in a season or something. Yeah, like he did have a good season. In fact, I, re- I remember, uh, I think, didn't he score four on his debut against yeah. Exeter yeah, in the yeah, League yeah. Cup? I think, I think he won 4 0 and he scored all four. I think that was away, and I remember listening to it on the radio. So he was actually a player I liked, but yeah. when I started this and looked at all the people I wanted to interview, it was a list of about 60. With yeah. Obviously, people like Doug Ellis, the Saunders family, the Barton family, Steve Stride, the long-serving secretary, Alan Evans, Spinky. These kind of people were high up on the list, and I guess Stainrod would have been on it quite, uh, quite a lot lower. I'm joking about Stainrod, <laughs> but, uh, but in terms of initial feeling from those players that you were talking to, and the, the idea started to crystallise, was there a, a sense that their story, the real story, hadn't actually been told? I think they've always felt that they never got the credit they deserved for yeah. the, uh, the well, the league championship win and uh, the European Cup and then Super Cup because it was an era when. Liverpool were dominating. Obviously, Not Forest had that. Uh, Nottingham yeah. Forest had that period, didn't they? When they won the European Cup twice, uh, had some great success. And Cluffy was so quotable, wasn't he? That he was yeah. in the media a lot. Ron Saunders wasn't really a great lover of talking a lot to the media. So Villa, and when Ron Saunders left, and then the success dipped very quickly after Rotterdam. Villa disappeared a bit in terms of the national uh, media well, coverage. Just, just so I think all the players are quite glad this story yeah. is being told. So just just to backtrack a little bit, what I what I learned from the book, which I didn't know, was actually Brian Clough was approached by Doug Ellis. I think that was just before he, they went with Saunders, wasn't it? And they had a meeting and uh, yeah. quickly realised it was never going to happen. Never going to happen. <laughs> Not with those egos, Doug and Brian Clough. No. In fact, um, the first consideration for that. Surprise, Doug, they went to sign John Robson, the old left-back in, uh, I think it was 1972. And uh, they went to the old baseball ground. And, and while um, Vic Crow was speaking to the player, John Robson, yeah. Cluffy and his uh, sidekick, Peter Taylor, turned on Doug and the secretary, Alan Bennett, and said, would you ever consider us as managing Villa? Which, obviously, when they were there to sign a player, they didn't see that one coming. Vic yeah. Crow was already in the job doing okay, so yeah. it was kind of dismissed pretty quickly. But then when uh, Vic Crow was sacked in 1974, they did consider Cluffy, and Doug went and met him in a restaurant in Litchfield, but um, like you said, that I think Doug realised pretty quickly that the size of Cluffy's ego was never going to go along with his own. And, and it was never really taken much further than that. Obviously, Ron Saunders was also a strong-minded guy, but he was happy to take much lower profile. Yeah, yeah. I think that was there was plenty of room up front for uh, Ellis to kind of posture. That's right. And that was, I think, that's like the the biggest difference between Saunders and Clough uh, in the end. But it's when when you look at Villa's history, uh, I don't know, even nineties. There's a lot of what ifs. Mm. What if we had signed these players? And a lot of the reason why Saunders left is I read that bit about the North Stand and the uh, was it Terry Rutter and uh, yeah. Harry, it, it Harry get, Marston. Yeah, it gets quite political and deep in the end. But I think the best way to crystallise it is the fact that Ron Saunders was he was not your, your typical football manager who just wanted to you know buy players and worry about his team he, he cared deeply about the whole football club he wanted yeah. to know what was going on throughout which is something that Doug Ellis always never liked when he was chairman uh, obviously Doug wasn't there for that three-year period from 79 to 82 but 
that was typical Ron. He want, and he felt there was a lot of money coming into Villa at that stage. And he thought, well, we've got all this money coming in. Why am I not getting my hands on any of it to buy players? Because ultimately they were getting to a point where there was being as successful as a team could mm. be. So there's got to be money there. It's yeah, like kind of we, logical. There was a quote from uh, Tony Morley saying that we've, we've won the league or the European Cup. Why aren't we going to try and sign players like Brian Robson and Ray Wilkins? I mean, realistically, Robson was never going to leave Man United after signing for them for over a million quid from West Brom a year earlier. But I actually interviewed uh, dear old Ray Wilkins just be- about a month before he died, actually. Oh, really? Lovely guy. Yeah. And he spoke about why he wouldn't have gone to Villa at that stage because he saw what United were building, what it eventually became. Obviously, uh, won the FA Cup with them in 83 with that great goal. But he spoke about how Villa didn't build for the future yeah. like Man United did and eventually that's what happened with the relegation United were also interested in Ron Saunders weren't yeah, they at one yeah. stage I believe Martin Edwards spoke to him about it and uh, it, even Ron could have had the England job after yeah. Ron Greenwood as well but um, I mean these this is what's really frustrating here, here you've got a manager that arguably the best manager Villa have ever had who has the interests of the club mm. at, at heart to such an extent he tells England to get lost, mm. he tells Manchester United to get lost, and then the end game is so. Uh, there's a lot of unfulfilled, unfulfilled promise there. I mean, but there's, there's, I mean, there's a saying that nowadays a lot of Villa fans say, and that's typically Villa, and that is typically Villa when when the golden goose is in sight, we, mm. we always turn our back. Don't on go it. the extra mile. Yeah. That's right. But um, Ron Saunders. This is fact. He wanted to finish his managerial career at Villa. It's a shame in the end that a great manager like him ended up going to Birmingham City. He had a couple of good seasons there with a couple of bad ones. And then obviously had a bad time at West Brom where he retired and totally, you know, didn't want to know football after that. He could have ended so so much different if that had maybe backed him a bit more. He wanted to strengthen that team when they won the league. He really wanted to strengthen that. I mean, we all know they, they did that with 14 players, which was incredible. And when that squad got tested with injuries in 1981-82, yes, they won the European Cup, but even Gordon Cowan's told me there was clearly some prioritising going on there whereby they thought, well, we've won the league, we've never been in the European Cup before, we might yeah. never be in it again, and they put everything into the European Cup yeah. to the point yeah. where they won it. But look where they finished in the league. I think it was 11th. Because so. I think uh, I remember reading in the book where it, where it suggests that the board actually thought, well, if you can win the league with 14 players, then you can obviously you don't need them anymore. Mm. So that's why they uh, that, that well, was that their was excuse for not spending. Yeah, and that was naive thinking from a guy Ronald Bendel, who uh, he was not really a football man. He was a he was a businessman, and and then in that decision really was a typical businessman who, if they could not spend money, then they'd rather not. But the fact is that their one signing after winning the league was Andy Blair. Yeah. And not knocking Andy, he's a nice guy and he was a good player, a good young player at that stage who they picked up from Coventry for not very much money. But surely when you when you're English champions, you've knocked not Nottingham Forest and Liverpool off their perch and you've you've gone to the uh, final hurdle with Ipswich and all their stars and you've won. Surely you'd strengthen a bit more and bring yeah, in some so more players. The, the but he wasn't picture, allowed to do that. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the process of actually uh, putting the book together. And to tell the story, you obviously have two obstacles straight away. One is Ron Saunders is obviously uh, 
obviously suffering deep with Alzheimer's and obviously uh, Tony Barton is no longer with us. Did you see that as an obstacle and, and ultimately how, how, let's say, clear was the info that you got from the family and you know how were they in terms of getting what you wanted to fulfil the book? Yeah, well, first of all, if I take the Tony Barton's case, obviously he passed away in the 1990s, so... Um, his role in Villa from, from the time he came into the club as a scout in the 70s through to when he was sacked as manager in 1984, his memories were integral to the, to the story really, particularly that European Cup runner and after the way some of the players left. And I was really pleased that his son Chris and his wife Rose invited me around their house and I spent a whole Sunday afternoon with them and they, they were really honest and transparent with what happened and yeah. what Tony had been through and talked about his you know his, uh, his plans for Villa and some of his experiences and so that really opened my eyes and, and helped me tell the story in, in terms of his role. As regards to Ron Saunders, I agonised for a long time whether I should even approach them. One, because I knew I'd got no chance with Ron because he never yeah. really speaks to the media. Yeah. And two, I thought will his family really want to help me because there's a lot of things that are not very nice said about his dad in the book because while he was a great manager and possibly one of the greatest ever motivators of, of footballers and psychologists he was always he was all, all, also accused of being a bit of a bully with some yeah. players but some players but, actually say in the book that he, he wouldn't he wouldn't work now it would just exactly. wouldn't be allowed but but just to finish that point though uh, fortunately Ron's son contacted me and and saw what I was trying to do and realized that by helping me the story is going to be a lot more accurate with their cooperation than not so we had many conversations and I think that's a good point you make there. I think with that accessibility to the Saunders and Barton families, the, the story is a lot more authentic. Oh, well, it's, some would say it's essential to uh, give it the stamp of uh, yeah. well, the one, authenticity. Well, it, I mean, there's so many themes in the whole book covered from a 20-year period from 68 to 88, but the one memory or one period that I was really keen to get to the bottom of was how Ron Saunders left, and, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm proud and pleased that I was able to I think tell that story better that, than anywhere else. Was that else. a process where at any stage you were like I still haven't got enough in terms of being happy with the, the resolution that you're putting in the book I mean was there any loose ends that you that you had to go uh, and kind of find somewhere else or, or basically back up what had been said? Not really I mean there's always another player you could have spoken to or another manager but I think I think over it took me about probably about four years to put this together on and off with other other things going on in my life and I think over that period I was very uh, thorough. There's probably about 80 interviewees contributing to the book, so I tried to cover all bases really from the dressing room to the boardroom, the secretaries. Even I even spoke to managers of other teams when dealing with when signing players from Villa or selling them to Villa. There's a chapter in there on how Andy Gray came to leave Villa to go mm. to Wolves and I went and met John Barnwell in a coffee shop in Nottingham where he lives now and he told me chapter and verse on how he signed Gray. And I spoke to Gordon Lee about how he signed Gidman and Gordon Milne on selling Dennis Mortimer and buying Ray Graydon and Bobby McDonald. So I tried to cover every, yeah. every base really. What stage of the process did um, access to 
basically boardroom notes uh, arise because that was I mean I've spoken to a few people uh, who said why would a club open the door to that mm. kind of information because that's quite unusual to get kind of almost like carte blanche access to uh, records and yeah. transfer fees and all that kind of yeah, stuff yeah. Well, first, which I mean it's happy days for you well, the, the readers are the winners at the end of the day because yeah. it's, the story is more authentic and a lot more honest and transparent than I should imagine anyone has ever written before because of that but um, I, I would admit I probably got a bit lucky I wrote to the club asking for uh, a chance to come and research that period and they opened their doors to to me um, towards the, near the start of this process, the writing process and uh, it was probably at a time when Villa were more interested in you know the disarray of the club really when during the Tom Fox era when they yeah. didn't know what was going on and uh, on the playing side wasn't great and, and in that time I suppose I slipped through the back door and uh, I was going to say you're probably <laughs> the only person to benefit yeah. from Tom Fox <laughs> exactly so uh, but I was shown into this like a broom covered kind of room really and um, I had access to all these folders and books and uh, all just getting dusty really and was, uh, was there a, like like a in hell kind of moments I think so but not not instantly it was only when I started realizing the the boardroom meetings had managers notes in and they was talking right. about players they wanted to sell or players they wanted to buy and transfer fees wages what they were paying players what what uh, bonuses they were giving out and there's details in there you'd never otherwise have known yeah but the way I would look at it is I mean it's it's a typical reaction there for a club or even someone who's worked at a club to say oh why would they have opened up that kind of information to this author yeah, 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 but yeah. the way I would look at it is even if I was uh, the, the the new management at Villa now I would say well I'm glad they did that because this is this is possibly the most successful period in Villa's history and the fans deserve to know what really went on, and now they do. Yeah. Because what's the point in having all these boardroom records and files and contracts and everything if they're just locked up, getting dusty in a cupboard for forever and a day? You know, and, you surely know, you they deserve to come out and tell a story at some point. And, and the, 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 the villa store may burn down one day well, <laughs> on exactly. a freak, freak accident. <laughs> it happens, so I'm sure. What was the, the most amazing thing to you personally that you found in those uh, boardroom notes? There was a, a few things, one story saying that um, in late 1978, Ron Saunders came into a boardroom and said that uh, I've heard Trevor Francis is available. He was a guy who always seemed to score against Villa. Yeah. He was an England player by then, so he was a big name. He was a terrace hero at St Andrews. And it amazed me that Villa or, or Ron, who'd never really liked stars or big names, he'd prefer yeah. to find them in a lower league and build them up. It amazed me that he actually considered buying Trevor Francis and he was encouraging the board to back him on that. But while they didn't say no, they reminded him that there was quite a, a large overdraft and said, well, they pretty much said, well, you know, we can consider him, but you need to sell before you can buy. I think we've heard that before at Villa, haven't we? Yeah. So, uh, what period? That what was year, shocking. What year was that? That was late 1978, but Francis actually left a few months later. That was when he went to Forest for a million quid. That was the first million so, pounds. So it was transfer. definitely an authentic story that he was on his way out. Yeah. But Villa just wasn't in a position to buy. If it had been a year later, maybe that would have been different because they sold Andy Gray for 1.5. But uh, yeah. at that stage, he just couldn't afford it. What was the, the story in the book towards the end of Ron Saunders? We'll go back to the actual making of the book in a second. But the story that Villa had 
employed a private detective to follow Ron Saunders around? Yeah, um, I wouldn't want to go too much into that because it's like giving the crown jewels <laughs> yeah, 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 to the yeah. block away, really. But I think it, I think but it's, that's a fascinating it's true. Story, that came yeah. from the Saunders family, but I think it just it just showed that how much Villa, or, or probably the, the the boardroom at that stage, or possibly more Ronald Bendel himself, yeah. just didn't like what Doug Ellis used to call him sticking his nose into club business. Yeah. That was just typical Ron who wasn't just interested in matters going on on the field. He wanted to know what money's coming in and where's it going. Yeah. And there was a feeling that we need to get this manager out and they effectively, just before his, uh, his resignation, they effectively put him on three years notice which ended his three year rolling contract in advance. It, it was probably what we would call nowadays constructive dismissal. Yeah. But now the time, there was I mean, none you, of that. you're getting into realms of like damned United, where you could you could have a story, a book just on that incident. Definitely, if you could flesh it that out. was that was fascinating. That, but uh, it, like, like I say, they didn't like Ron's concerns for areas that was away from the training ground. Let's say, and that was yeah. th that was some of the things that went on there. Sorry, going back to the who was the first person interviewed for uh, the book? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I probably wouldn't remember exactly the first and, one and of the was early. It, was it an interview for the book, or was it just uh, an interview that actually proved to be useful yeah. for a book? One of the early interviews would be Steve Stride. We went and met in a coffee shop in uh, Birmingham City Centre because I knew that Steve had been at the club from I think 1972 up to way past the period I was writing on. So he's he's seen everything that I'm talking about. And what I could say on Steve is, before I emailed it all, the whole man manuscript into my publisher, I actually emailed every chapter to Steve because I valued his opinion so much. Because I thought, well, well, it's, good, to, got, it's good that somebody does. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought, well, if, if there's someone can tell me I've I've got some part of this book wrong, it'll be Steve. And fortunately, he really enjoyed it, so that that meant a lot to me. Because uh, that's that's one of the mysteries of certainly like recent regimes of Aston Villa from let's say Randy Lerner onwards is why in so many circumstances where they had a bit of a skeleton staff at the top level it was like Paul Faulkner or just Tom Fox without much infrastructure around them footballing infrastructure that nobody ever picked up the phone to Steve Stride mm. just for even advice or to run things by him. He mm. was Mr seemed, Villa for a long time yeah. wasn't he? He's badly missed I'm sure that I'm not, I don't even know the regime there anymore. I'm not that directly linked to Villa like I, you know, yeah. was with, with other things gone by. But Steve, when you when you talk to players, managers, even secretaries from other clubs, no one's got a bad word to say about Steve. He's an ultimate professional. So I was really grateful to have his input in terms of his opinions on what I was writing. Tracing back my own childhood. Uh Obviously, uh, when it comes to that 80s team, everybody talks about Gary Shaw, Tony Morley, Peter Wibb, Dennis Mortimer. But I used to play centre-back at uh, my school team when I was like... You got the hype for it. We're, we're talking like, you know, uh, under 11s or whatever when it started. And mm. one of the things I learned off Alan Evans was, and I don't know if, he, if this was something he did on purpose, was he, if he was under pressure, he would always he head the ball over his own bar mm. to like get it out of there. And I used to replicate that, but my teammates would be like, what the fuck are you yeah, doing? Yeah. But I was totally doing it because I'd watched Alan Evans do it. And the only thing I knew about Alan Evans was uh, he was a driving instructor in Cornwall somewhere. So uh, it, it, was, it was great that you actually tracked mm -hmm. him down. I mean, how, how was he? Because apparently he was quite... Uh, 
did you have like a dinner with him? Yeah, very lucid. yeah, yeah. Um, my mother-in-law actually lives in Cornwall, so it was a good excuse to get away for a few hours. Right. <laughs> I know she won't listen to this, but now I thought, well, it's a long way to go otherwise, isn't it? So I'll slip away for an hour. I arranged to go and have a dinner with Alan at a um, lovely golf club called St Melian Resort. He was practicing on the putting green when I turned up late again. So, uh, <laughs> so we had we had dinner there and we put the tape recorder on and we probably did three or four hours together. Um, what I, I learned straight away, I didn't realise he'd been teetotal for nearly all throughout his career. Wow, yeah. So he he, he taught me a, a new summer drink that I didn't know, which was ginger ale and lime with a, on a load of ice. So I drink that because now and again he, if I mean, I'm driving. I mean, his persona. I mean, you obviously. His nickname was Psycho, mm. but also he was like a hard man, mm. which in back in those days, especially you would you would relate to like drinking and like yeah. you know, that kind of culture. What did he give you specifically uh, that maybe like some of the others didn't? I tell you didn't what was really interesting from Alan. I mean, we talk we, we're focusing here a lot on the the league and European Cup team, yeah. which is fair enough because that's probably the moon in terms because of the, he stretches, the title. He stretches to the promotion but, yeah, like team. Like you say, as well. he, he stretched from seventy-seven. Uh, all the way through to the relegation and then the promotion back under Graham Taylor and what I found fascinating was two parts in particular one was how bad things was under Billy McNeil in the relegation season which I'll come to in a minute but then the other other side of the coin how good things were under Graham Taylor when he came in and he actually said even though he'd been at the club 10 years by then he, he learned more under Graham Taylor and yeah. particularly his number two Steve Harrison about defending than he'd ever learned before in the whole ten years. Because in terms of I mean the reason one of the reasons I mention Alan Evans is obviously as we just said, he's one of the only people that got to stick around. Mm. Uh, I mean Gordon Cowan's obviously went but then came back. So we obviously saw the full arc mm. of what the book is essentially said, about. In fact he, he said it took him days to recover from that relegation. He said he was he was you know he was properly depressed by it and that's how much it meant to him. But um, the, the other part to his interview that was fascinating, the Billy McNeil part, was just how disinterested in the in the job Billy McNeil was. I mean, he took he left Man City to come to Villa, and, he, and Manchester City got relegated. Yeah, he, he relegated he, two teams in the same season. But he but he came in. Uh, I'm trying to remember when exactly. Did he come in before Christmas? Or? He came in in uh, October. Just yeah. after, or the end of September, just after Graham Turner got sacked. Because so he, had enough, he, had, a good time, run at he it. had enough time to turn yeah, it around. He had a good yeah. run at it. And when you look at the players in that squad, it should never have been relegated. You go through the team, people like Spink, yeah. Mark Walters, Tony DiRigo, Alan Evans, uh, Andy Graves, experienced, Steve Hodge, uh, Steve Hunt was an England player by then. And I'm missing Keona, as I mentioned. There's yeah. a lot of really good players in that that team. I mean, a I lot of them were quite young. Like that was Keown the one issue. That was the Keown one issue. Dorigo as well. well uh, Keon and Dorigo yeah. were two of the guys that probably de- deserved to be in the team, despite their age. But, but if they stuck too, around, you could have sold them on. Uh, there was far too many yeah. other players coming in. People like David Norton, Dean Glover, Ray Walker, Bernie Gallagher. There's a kid called Phil Robinson. It was just too much. It was too much youth, and that was that's where I blame Doug constantly focusing too much on kids. When you look at the age of the team that won the league in '81, like Shaw was like 19, but there, were, but there was, was a like balance, 21. wasn't there? That, there was yeah. a balance there. There was yes, you had Gary Williams, was you had young. Gibson, Williams, Shaw, 
people like that, but you also had the experience of Jimmy Rimmer, Peter With, Dennis yeah. Mortimer, Des Bremen had been around in Scotland in Hibernian, even Tony Morley who always got associated with the kids, even he'd been around for a good seven or eight years by so then. So what, what's your, uh, I mean without obviously giving away too much from the book, uh, did why Villa got relegated, that five year drop, did that become a more fascinating than the actual rise to win uh, the European Cup? I think uh, it goes hand in hand, it's all part of the journey, but what was interesting f for me, I was, I was really pleased to get an exclusive interview with Graham Turner, Yeah, we had a good chat on the phone for about 40 minutes and um, I was he's like a forgotten man in the, yeah, in the yeah, whole well, story. He was there for two years and it's incredible that he came to Villa two years after they won the European Cup as a player manager from Shrewsbury Town. He was, you know, was he 36? 36, yeah. 36. Yeah. So it, I was really pleased to get his interview and just talk about how difficult it was to go into that. It was a very tight-knit dressing room for him to go and then tell people like Dennis Mortimer and Peter With how to play football. You know, that was tough for him. But not only that, he told me about the players that they were interested in. You know, that he, to be fair to him, he, he brought in some good players like Keown and... Steve Hodge. My one big criticism with, with that era was that while they would make good signings like Hodge, Barton, bought McMahon, but he was there when Turner came in, is they would seem to sign a good player on one hand but sell sell on, this, on, on the yeah. other. And I think it's been like that probably throughout our lifetimes where you almost feel like you're getting somewhere and then you'll sell a best player. Yeah. And w when you keep selling, you, you can never really you know, get up there, can you? And there it is, that's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable! Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Picture the scene. All of your mates around. You've got your McNugget share boxes ready to go. Partner this with your team playing champagne football. Perfect. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. There's nothing quite like a McDelivery. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Talked about Eleanor Evans saying that uh, Billy McNeil didn't have any vision or idea. Did Graham Turner come across that he had, he was confident in himself and in the position he was? Because there have been, I mean, I, and I'm guilty of it myself, is drawing parallels with like Dean Smith coming in mm. with his Brentford uh, CV, mm. shall we say, and when Graham Turner came in, all he had was Shrewsbury, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Dean Smith has, let's say, a clean way of playing, mm. a clear way, not a clean way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and you hope it's going to 
transfer on a bigger canvas with Villa, but Graham Turner was kind of nobody expected no. that. It's an interesting parallel. Um, what I remember speaking to Mervyn Day, who was a goalkeeper for a couple of seasons yeah. in those days, and he said that one of the big mistakes Turner made was he would come along in a training session, he would say, Right, lads, this is what we're going to do, this is what we used to do at Shrewsbury. And, People like Dennis Mortar and Peter with you know, just won the European Cup, won a league. They're looking at each other saying, we don't really care what you did at Shrewsbury, we're Aston Villa. So, But I don't think Dean Smith would make that mistake and say, right lads, this is what we do at Brentford. Because yeah. number one, Villa aren't that great now where Villa were in the 80s. And number two, Dean Smith is probably 10 years older now than Graham Turner was yeah, then, so he's yeah. a lot more experienced yeah, and that's to handle of, those situations. That's, what, that's the biggest shock of the Graham Turner. I remembered him as a, uh, let's say, a highly regarded young manager, mm. but when you say young manager, you're thinking mid-40s, yeah. but actually he was only 36, which, uh, which yeah. you think, what was Doug Ellis doing? <laughs> but what was also interesting, another revelation in the book, I came to find out was that he wasn't the first choice, it was about the seventh choice. Mm which that only came out from me talking to lots of different people. Was um, that like with the choices like David Pleat? Was that one? Yes, Pleat was offered the job. When uh, Doug was in hospital once, he offered uh, David Pleat the job. He was doing a good job, wasn't he, at Luton at yeah, the time? Yeah, they were great. Yeah. But he turned that down for a couple of reasons. He felt he was doing good things with Luton, with the likes of Ricky Hill and Brian Steen and those yeah, guys. Yeah. But he also felt that when, when he was offered the job, Tony Barton was still in, in the role at Villa, and he thought, well, number one, I know Tony Barton and I don't want to take his job while he's still got it. And number two, I'm quite happy at Luton, thank you very yeah. much. And he, he said I'll wait for a really big club, which you know, a lot of us Villa fans might like to think, well, wasn't Villa a big enough club for you to come from Luton? When he, but when he went to Spurs, it just shows you the dip already yeah. that, that had gone on there. I'm, I'm sorry, but Spurs at that time, well, there they were early 80s, they were like the FA Cup Well, they won a couple of FA Cups, but they they still hadn't won what Villa had won, which is a good point, actually. The fact the way Pleat saw Tottenham is a bigger move than Villa, and and Tottenham still now haven't won the league since 1961. They've never won the European Cup yet. Never will. David Pleat, yes, (laughs) uh, maybe. But still, David Pleat looked at Tottenham as being a bigger move for him than Villa, which shows you how how quickly Villa had dropped. But I remember in the, uh, especially as a young kid, I mean, obviously, you didn't have the internet back in those days, but the the overriding thing would be when it came down to transfers. Like Birmingham wasn't an exciting enough mm. place for like players, like today even, wanted to stay in uh, either London or uh, even Manchester and Liverpool were seen as. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's the thing when you when you listen to that argument and people didn't want to move to Birmingham. Well, they moved to Liverpool, yeah. and you know, there's not that much. I difference. think that I think that argument's overrated. Myself, I think a lot of it was probably started by London media, who, I mean, used to show up more with England football team selections, didn't yeah, it? When they yeah, used yeah. to speculate on squad, it, most of these newspapers were based in London, and Arsenal, Tottenham players would always get favour over a club because like you, Villa. You look at that 1982 World Cup squad, and and you just look at. Nowadays, Gary Shaw would have been in that squad, yeah, yeah. no problem. Tony yeah. Morley, no problem. Yeah. Well, I touch on that quite a lot yeah. in the book about how Villa are European Cup winners, yet only Peter With was in the 1982 World Cup squad. Tony Morley was there on top of the pop singing the World Cup song, but he didn't even make the final party. And when you're looking at uh, what actually England needed in those, uh, it used to be the second round then when they played Spain and Germany, they needed some spark. And mm. Gary Shaw and Tony Morley were like right up for that job. Yeah, well, I think they drew nil-nil twice, didn't they? 
but uh, I don't think there was a better attacking player than Tony Morley in Europe at that stage. But like you said, maybe that had a bit to do with that London bias against the Midlands. And, and not only that, uh, Ron Saunders in his time was very so dedicated to keeping his players fit and playing for Aston Villa that if Ron Greenwood would ring up saying I, I want to take Withy or Tony Morley in my yeah. squad next week Ron Saunders would say oh he can't come he's got a hamstring and then he'd say to Tony Morley you've got a hamstring haven't you you can't go train with England he'd say no gaffer I'm fit yeah. uh, no you've got a hamstring he, you know he, he wanted his players to forego international careers yeah. to play for Villa but the bigger players would like Morley would say well gaffer I want to go and play for my country and and he did. In that period, even like Ron Atkinson turned down the England job, Ron Saunders wasn't interested in it, but players, it still meant something mm. to players, big time. It's not like, I mean, let's say recently there's, there's a bit more pride in it, but there was a period of like 10 years where people avoided playing for their national team. Yeah, so that probably has a lot to do with money over the years, doesn't it? Where the big money's and, and the glory and the prestige is more with like a, playing in the Premier League and the Champions League. Yeah. Unfortunately, and they don't really get any money out of playing for England. Money shouldn't come into it, of course. We all know that, but it, it, I'm sure it probably does. But like you say, back then, wearing the three lions, I think probably whether it meant more to players then or now, I don't know. But it certainly meant a lot to those yeah. Villa players. In terms of, um, you said you had a list of, let's say, 60 at the start. Was there anybody you didn't get for whatever reason? Um, yeah, there was a few I couldn't get hold of in the end. Uh, there wasn't many though. I remember John Gregory, Alan Kerbishley were a couple of guys I couldn't get hold of. Whether it was giving me the wrong number or uh, just Greg phoning at the times when they were out the country. Cause he Gregory's was, in India. He was in India, of course, yeah. yeah. Alex Cropley I couldn't get hold of. But funnily enough, I actually met him this year when it was too late. But, yeah. but pretty much... Most people who I wanted to speak to, the key people and a lot of the players that I managed to sit down with. So that was, uh, you know, there's no, there's no regrets on anyone I didn't really speak to. And when it came to having access to like the boardroom, was there anything uh, that was kind of off limits? No, not at or all. Or anything sensitive that actually you actually made a decision not to uh, there's run one, it? There's one, no, nothing to do with the minutes or the documents. Um, there's one or two interviews when I thought maybe someone's saying something about a player and then I thought, well, yeah. it's probably a bit personal and that doesn't really need to go and you don't need to humiliate anyone. I won't mention yeah. names. So that's just... But you can on this podcast. <laughs> that, that's just journalism instincts, yeah. you know, and yeah. just knowing knowing what's relevant. What, what, you can tell a good, interesting, funny story without slaughtering yeah. someone sometimes. Yeah. So that you get decisions like that. The one thing I asked for at Villa, which uh, they couldn't bring to me, were the manager's memos. Doug Ellis apparently loved his memos. He'd love to right. send manager's memos, things like, um, you know, we need to... We need to do this, that or the other or keep wages down or whatever it was. I mean, a lot of this stuff gets covered in boardroom meetings anyway, but apparently Doug loved his memos and I did ask for a file of these memos, but that never came forward. Whether they're still around, I don't know, but I think I'm still pretty happy with what I get in the end. There's another book, Doug's memos. <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> Uh, you interviewed Ron Atkinson. Did yes. you know? I mean, he's. Yeah. I interviewed him for this podcast. Uh, was, what, what was his input like, and uh, how long did you get? Well, yeah, well, I rang Ron up, and there was a few themes I wanted to talk about there. Number one, I have a whole chapter on Ron Saunders, and 
not only when he came to Villa, I think it was important that the readers knew just what made Ron Saunders tick and his background before he came to Villa. And yeah. I was interested to learn that um, Ron Atkinson was a player for Ron Saunders yeah, at Oxford. Oxford. Yeah. So he kind of, because it was interesting to draw a parallel between Ron Saunders' style back then and I also interviewed Dave Stringer when he was at Norwich under Ron Saunders, so I wanted to kind of build a picture of how Ron Saunders' management changed from his early days to when he was at Villa. And I interviewed people like um, Tony Buck at Man City. So he was able to get a picture of how his management evolved over the years. But Ron Atkinson also, I wanted to know, he bought John Dean off the Villa, so I wanted to know about that transfer. Right, he also right, yeah. told me about the times he turned down the job after Tony Barton left. Yeah. Um, so just and also I've got a chapter on the Midlands rivalry in the late seventies because I thought it was relevant that although Villa won the league in the European Cup in eighty one eighty two, probably a year or two earlier there wasn't even number one in the Midlands. Never mind yeah. Europe because Nuts Forest were on top. So and and Ron Atkinson's West Brom were doing really well. Because back in the day of, uh, I think it was like shoot magazines and match yeah, annuals, good. they would have like Pride of the Midlands and the league tables and the games they'd won and like mm. they'd compare and contrast the two. Mm. So the Midlands rivalry was actually a national concern. Yeah, yeah. Like nowadays, obviously, it's Manchester United, Liverpool and Everton or whatever. Yeah, it was interesting. When I spoke to John Barnwell, the Wolves manager from that time, and Gordon Milne, who was Coventry manager at that time, um, it was interesting that they both felt, outside of Forest, West Brom were the best team. Yeah. They felt West Brom were more, you know, enterprising and more attacking, and that, and just generally the a team they they feared more. But uh, they all have full respect for what Ron managed to do with Villa in the end. Sorry, just picking up the Alan Evans thing. Is, is he living a life completely out of football and has nothing to do with it? Or? Um, I think he does a bit of coaching at a college down there. But like you said, he, he lives in uh, Cornwall, near to Plymouth now. So he's got his driving school. Saltash. Saltash, yeah. yeah. He's got, his, he's got his own driving now, school yeah. and uh, loves his golf still. He had the horrible um, heartache of losing his daughter which wasn't very nice for him, of course. So he's been through a lot, Alan, but you know, lovely guy, possibly the most honest, transparent interview in the whole book. You know, right. Great, great uh, interviewee, very grateful for his honesty. Um, but he still loves the game, you know. I think he comes up to watch Villa now and again when they invite him as one of the old ex-players, so he still enjoys the game. And uh, Peter With and Gary Shaw, were they... Uh a big part of the, the book? Or? Not really withy because he was he was doing his own book at the time and I knew that oh, that course, would be yeah. his focus. Um, but I did, I did check a few facts with him at the end because um, there was a few things said in the boardroom minutes about his contracts and so he was able to clarify that. Was there actually any uh, conjecture between two players' accounts because if there's an accident outside and there's five witnesses they'll give a different account of it? Not, not really. Um, most once, once uh, you get told something by another one person, you can check it with someone else, and generally it all added up. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example there. There's or, or two examples. One person told me that uh, John Gidman and Dennis Mortimer really didn't get on, and once you start talking to people like that, you you find it was a bit deeper than that. And mm. Around that 1979 time, there was actually people go as far to say it was a little bit of a splinter group in the dressing room. 
you know, you, and even Andy Gray told me that certain players, like including himself and John Gidman, felt Dennis Mortimer was taking too much team talk into the manager's office, right, right. and that created a, a bit of an atmosphere, and and that's why I, I think Gidman didn't like Saunders. No, he didn't, yeah. and that's why I, I think uh, Ron had that clear out in '79 when he he sold Gidman, he sold Gray, Gregory went, Brian Little was going to go, and he to the Blues, and he didn't in the end, but he finished not long after so I think Ron he was well aware of all this kind of um, whether you call it disharmony or what certain players as they wasn't aware of it because they wouldn't involve themselves in that kind of thing but yeah. there's no doubt there was a bit of an atmosphere between some players but it's amazing that two years later they've won the league so clearly Ron knew what he was doing and the characters he wanted to bring together it's, it's funny when you, you I think there's a bit in the book where you, I think maybe one of the players lays out how Ron Saunders plays it's, it's like this high press and get that ball back as quickly as possible and it's, it's basically Pep Guardiola and today's philosophy and what Dean Smith is doing yeah. as well yeah I think it was Des Bremner that said that wasn't it yeah. and uh, it, was a, it was a good point actually and I still actually think you could take that the team and the style of play that Saunders played back then and you could compare it to today, you, you could, you know, it, in terms of being the role model of a team. What I read in the book, the way you would take training and basically as a unit, the defence and midfield, he would focus on that and tell the strikers yeah. to bugger off and just yeah. practice finishing, almost as if they were a separate unit. That's right, and Brian Little said he actually, although he didn't get on with Ron, he says he learnt so much from him and he used a lot of his training techniques in his own management career. Mm. That, that point you've just made there so a regular training exercise at Bodymore would be Jimmy Rimmer the, the usual back four the three in the midfield so eight would take on maybe 11 of the reserves or the youth team so they would be like three men short just just to test them really of working together as a tighter more organised unit in defence and midfield and the strikers would go off and like you say maybe have shooting practice against the other goalkeepers so things like that run you know it was quite inventive yeah. They're, they're known as like a hard-working team, but when you looked at the highlights, when you, like Gary Shaw's control is fantastic, and you've got Morley's exuberance. It looks like Villa are the most exciting mm. team mm. <laughs> in the world, but it's mm. that once you've got it organised yeah. and solidified defensively, yeah. then you can express yourself at the other end. Because Ron came over as a bit of a dour character in press interviews, I mean, that, let's face it, that's how most of us feel that we know Ron isn't it that's yeah. the only it, unless you know him as a friend or a neighbour or anything like that that's the only it's like now isn't it that's the only sighting of a player or a manager you get so that was the, the image Ron gave off and people thought well Ron's dour and his teams are dour but yeah. really that wasn't the case they, they were hard working like you said they were all very physically fit Ron trained them really hard in pre-seasons but like you said when they had the ball they broke forward with pace if you, I mean I've doing the research for the book I was looking at YouTube videos and I couldn't stop watching some of them yeah, the way yeah. the likes of Gibbo or Williams and Swain burst forward and from the fullback positions um, it was so exciting to watch and, and this is you know when you anybody looks at uh, how Pep Guardiola builds his teams the two fullbacks are essential they've got to be able to play forward get, get forward but get back and you'll spend good money on them and you look at Villa they had exactly that and that was yeah. if there's one thing that Villa have struggled especially in the last 10 years or so is having decent fullbacks I mean mm. we under Martin O'Neill we have a right back for about five seasons mm, and then right. now we've got about 10 right backs and no, no left, left back. back yeah that's true <laughs> I think Alan Hutton's uh, 
I think he's grown into the club really well. I think he's become one of our most consistent players, whether he's at right back or left back. I think he would compare favourably to one of those players we had back then. But like you say, we're missing the left back or the right back. I mean, Hudson, I don't think, has, let's say, the finesse in the final third. I mean, sometimes he'll. At least he's a proper defender and he he does like to get forward. I don't mind that. He's at least has a bit of attacking intent. When you compare him to someone like um, who was that guy we had who played at left back? I've lost his name now. Nick Story. No, the old Liverpool player. Warnock. No. Staunton. Uh, no, I'm thinking more in Sissoko. That's him. Oh, right, yeah. I mean, I felt, about him. <laughs> I felt he had a nosebleed if he crossed the halfway line. Yeah, he was yeah. so negative. Maybe that's the way some managers asked him to play. But at least Hutton does have that attacking intent. So I, I actually think McGinn is like a Dennis Mortimer now. And, we, and I don't make comparisons like that very easily. I think McGinn has that ability to get forward and score goals, but also he gets back as well yeah. and tackles. Well, he's a player that Ron Saunders would potentially sign. Yeah, not have, a big would, name. And, and yeah. in today's market, you know, 2.75, I think it was, is a, is a snip, isn't it? Back then, he would probably, he'd well, probably that's, that's compare to the old uh, £200,000 signing. He's an example of the kind of signings Villa will be making yeah. from now on in because right. when well, you do a bit of due diligence, get a good price... And you can actually, if, if he if he leaves in the end, because Villa haven't been making profits on any of these players. No, been giving them away because they they were overpaying, wasn't they, on a lot of the players? Yeah. And they're overpaying on wages chronically on on your, you know likes of Hogan and Lansbury and Elphick. Yeah, there's a lot of squad players sitting on the bench that. If you were a new manager coming in, you'd really want to start trimming the squad a bit, wouldn't you? And sort of getting rid of these players who are on big wages, not playing, and bringing in some of your own men. But it's not easy, is it, to sell players who are quite happy sitting on a big contract and no other teams really want them, which is why you end up giving them away. You just want them off the wage bill. Did you learn anything new? About the Saunders and Ellis relationship, because obviously uh, I think Ellis says in the book, and I forgot to ask you about Ellis, uh, Ellis says in the book they're obviously not on each other's Christmas card list. So how was the, uh, obviously the interview going to Ellis, because I'd imagine, was he a bit suspicious about it in the first? Um, Probably. When he was first approached? He he let me into his house for two hours and he spent the first hour telling me about everything good he'd done for the club which is fair enough and you have to give him his time don't you Doug when you're in his house and he is Mr Aston Villa whatever mistakes he's made it it was very courteous and respectful but I had fine china I'm sure there was (laughs) but I was more interested on these 52 questions I wanted to ask him but I managed to get about 40 out in the end but um what I would say is, is that I had a lot of difficult questions. I knew that would probably be my only chance to ask all these difficult questions yeah. to Doug. And I asked most of them. And what I would say was he started looking at his watch when a lot more of the challenging pressing questions came. And right. I was politely uh, shown the door after about two hours because it was lunchtime. But um, I think <laughs> That's he... all right, Doug, I'll join you. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't that cheeky. But I would actually, without blowing my own trumpet, I think, I think he was impressed with... The research I'd, I'd done and the interviews how, how, I'd done by uh, then. What was, stage was that interview? If you, you're talking about four years to put it together. Uh, I think I interviewed him in t- 2014, which would have been probably about a year in. But I, right. I'd spoken to a lot of people by then. And it was I mean, the main things I was keen to know about Doug were the, the, a lot of the sales, really, after after the European Cup. And he, the one thing that came from him was he said, I'd never 
told a manager who to sell or who to buy. It said that was always down to the manager. Some player, players would probably say that's a load of rubbish. But he, he, I, I, mean, one I did put that question to Graham yeah. Turner and he said, no, everyone I sold or bought was my decision, it wasn't Doug. Because there was the infamous rumour that he bought David Janela obviously Gregory. That's, obviously that may well have been true. Yeah. That's come a lot after, after the, the book yeah. period. I, I'm not sure about that. But um, all I can say is in the period I was concentrated on, Doug said that he only he let the managers make those decisions on transfers. What I, I would think definitely happened though, he, he would have put people like Tony Barton and Graham Turner under pressure by saying, look, if you want this player, you're going to have to generate yeah. half a million pounds first from selling players. He was certainly always had a keen eye on the balance sheet and, and knew that you can't just keep buying players, you've, you've got to sell to buy, which is probably the one criticism I personally would have for him. That, where Villa lacked a bit of ambition, where they just didn't go that extra mile and add to what we've well, got. Well, that's, that's a phrase that's been used uh, too many times. It, but it was yeah. being, but it was being used in the mid '90s when yeah. the likes of Southgate, Ekiog, and uh, George Boateng were saying, "Why yeah. did you leave Villa? Lack of ambition." Yeah. and they ended up at Middlesbrough. And then even after <laughs> Doug's time with Randy Lerner with the Martin O'Neill days, it's a shame, isn't it? It's, it is a recurring pattern. It's yeah. it's it's. Uh, Bit of a blot on Villa's copybook, really. And did Ellis have any regrets? Did he? Well, from from you, you know, from your time with him. Regrets. I mean, I asked him about the relegation. Of course, that would have been a regret. He would never have wanted. But he, he said he felt that pain more than anybody. Because Graham Taylor described the club as a shambles. Mm. Probably wasn't more the club as a shambles. I would have thought the club, knowing Doug was in reasonably good state financially. I think yeah. the team was in more of a shambles. Yeah. So when he came in, he he knew a lot of players had to go and he wanted to bring in a lot of other players because I suppose like the situation we're in now, you needed a certain kind of character to roll up your sleeves when you're in the, the second tier. Some players think they're too good for that, don't they? And uh, Graham Taylor made massive changes sold about 11 players and brought in about 11 players so he, he was strong enough also to stand up to Doug and said well if you want promotion we're going to have to pay this yeah. player this amount of money wages or we're going to have to spend this a lot of his transfer fees wasn't that big actually Graham Taylor he, he was buying people like David Hunt uh, Stuart Gray Steve Sims you know a lot yeah, of these think, players yeah, just people he knew he could trust to do like a job he wanted. They were like around 100,000 mark weren't they? I think Andy Gray and Stuart Gray were, were essential purchases they kind of changed yeah, they yeah. made uh, Villa a bit let's say tougher. Yeah yeah there, there was Mark Lillis again people who as a Villa fan you'd never say oh let's go out and sign Mark Lillis you know he would have been the last name that most of us would yeah. have thought of but you know he did a job in that promotion team added to some of the players we already had, someone like Gary Thompson, who a Villa fan as a kid, brummy guy, knew what it meant, rolled up his sleeves and one of our key players in that promotion year, along with guys that were still there like Alan Evans. So There's a chapter on the book, in the book, sorry, all about Gary Thompson's hernia, if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why that was relevant is because I think it showed he kept breaking down yeah. in the relegation year. But it is an insight into it, sometimes that clubs yeah, it, don't I mean, do their job. It, it just showed that Villa was unable to identify his injury. But when da Graham Taylor came in, within not uh, long, that injury was uh, diagnosed as a hernia and he got sorted out. 
so straight away yeah. it just went a bit deeper than the, the team it was even like the, the support staff and Graham Taylor brought his own medical staff in and, and, got, and Tomo got sorted so it's just another example how Graham Taylor improved things if I have three regrets or three key moments in my time of supporting Villa that I look back on I remember being sad about one was Ron Saunders leaving which obviously is well covered in the book the second was Graham Taylor getting the England job because I thought Villa were onto a good thing at that time but the other thing is Gary Shaw's injury and I haven't I don't I haven't read that section of the book if it, is it covered in the book because yes, I think yes. that is something that yeah it's covered is, contributes to the fall of the European champion. Yeah. Well, Steve McMahon made a good point, actually, when I interviewed him. He said that um, when he came in, he was actually excited. He said he turned down Liverpool to come to Villa. And the cynical people would say, you only did that because you can't go from Everton yeah. to Liverpool. So yeah, yeah. It was, Villa was a, a very handy stepping stone. The cynical people would say that, but he, he denied that and said, no, I genuinely saw Villa as a great move. You know, they're not, They'd won the European Cup a year before and I saw them as a big move. So whatever your thoughts on that, McMahon made a good point with that Villa's slide was partially down to some really terrible luck with Gary Shaw's injury that you just mentioned and also Gordon Cameron's breaking his leg. Yeah, yeah. He said that you can't took a season out. Yeah, he said you can't overestimate the blow that was on Villa. There were two players really who he says Gary Shaw would have had a lot of caps for England and Gordon Cameron's probably would have had a lot more because that, that broken leg came at a terrible time for him where he was in the England yeah, squad. Yeah. Uh, Villa was obviously doing well. So to take Shaw and Karens out of that squad, yeah, that was, was a real double hammer blow. So, I mean, how does Gary Shaw carry it on his, on his shoulders, bears the weight of that? What could have been, or is he pretty uh, philosophical about it? Well, I think he's probably had so long now to... Yeah. He probably gets bored of talking about right, his exactly, knees yeah. and his surgeries. Yeah. I mean, he's had well over 10 operations on his knees. He's still struggling with it now. It's His whole career is just a terrible sad case isn't it of what might have been yeah. I think um, Colin Gibson said that if it hadn't been for injury we'd have been talking about Gary Shaw in the same breath as people like Bergkamp and Van Basten yeah, no, without and, yeah. and even Ray Wilkins when I interviewed him he said that what a great player he was you know he says he wasn't just a good he trained with him for England he says he was a fantastic player you know so it's a very sad case, really, and that was just one of the things that really contributed to Villa's slide after yeah. Rotterdam. Have you got any closing words? Oh, <laughs> just for any... I mean, obviously, I'm not going to demand people go out and buy the book. What I would just say is, is that if anyone has got interest in Aston Villa and particularly that period of 1970s and 80s where we, we came up, we conquered Europe and then slid back down again, if anybody really is interested in knowing what went on behind the scenes, in the boardroom, in the dressing room, on the training ground. If anybody's interested in knowing all the stories behind the stories, then I'd like to think they're never going to get a, a better read than, than this one because of there's so many people I've spoken to and well, it's that, authentic, that's, that's, that's for sure. That's the key, I mean, because these people won't be around uh, you know, forever. And it is uh, the key to any good book is to obviously speak to the people that we're actually there and, that, and that's the great thing well, about it you're going to get biographies and autobiographies about one man whether it's Brian Little's book Peter Will's book or yeah. someone else Kenny Swain's book that'll all be about one man yeah. this book's going to be about the whole club with all those people being part of the journey 
So if you want to know why Villa sold Gidman and Gray or why the European dream suddenly sh was shattered very quickly and how Graham Turner came to be player manager at 36, you know, all these things, they're all covered in there. So hopefully if people do read it, I'm sure they'll enjoy it if, they're, you know, if they've got a passion about Villa. And uh, when's your next book about uh, Dr. Vengos coming out? <laughs> You've been mischievous now. <laughs> That's the one I'm waiting for. Yeah. Um, you know, this has been such hard work, getting to the bottom of all these stories with Villa that I'm just going to take a breather, I think, and uh, let my wife get to know me again and my son maybe throw a few balls to him and, and cricket in the back garden again. But... I'm sure there will be another book again in but another was it, year or Was two. it, uh, I mean, the actual process uh, in terms of writing it, was it a, uh, a kind of a structured job? Did, are you a morning person? No, person? totally no, no structure. I would love structure. I, I, I think I'm probably someone with OCDs, but I haven't got structure. I mean, I have another job that running this agency that you mentioned about, this cricket agency, so I was... It's, this book actually, as stressful as it sounds with all the interviews, it was actually quite relaxing for me. It's a, being a journalist over 25 years, it was, it was relaxing sitting in an airport for two or three hours, transcribing interviews and putting chapters together. It, it was really enjoyable to yeah. put together like a jigsaw puzzle really, so to see it all in print now and, and people come up to me and say how much they've enjoyed it, you know, it's very satisfying. Well, thanks very much for uh, joining me uh, to discuss Ticket to the Moon. Well, thanks firstly for uh, talking about the book and, yeah, uh, no and everything problem. else. I appreciate it. Just one thing, in, in terms of Villa history, before this period, we'd hardly won anything when we've had a manager, because when we won all those league titles back, like, I don't know, 19th century, mm. right at the start, turn of the century, teams were picked by committee so the manager the concept for the manager only really came in i think it was the 1930s 1920s 30s and villa resisted the whole idea of having a manager so when you look back on who won what as a villa manager it, it starts really yeah. in the period of this book well i think so and uh, i think anybody can quite rightly call this the golden era of aston yeah. villa really yeah. obviously the european cup is uh, unprecedented in terms of success but the point I made when when Villa won the league that championship winning season that was their first championship winning 71 years way back to, since 1910 yes Villa has this great history of all these FA Cups and league championships but even at most of our granddads weren't born yeah, when, uh, yeah, when yeah. a lot of our success so it just put in perspective really that this success came in the more what I would still call the modern era you know 71 years was it's ridiculous really that, that it went so long to win the league so no I don't anyone would argue this is the, the golden era of yeah. the club the golden generation yes <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much thank you my old man said I guess there's not much we can say in a pub, is there? You, excuse me. Sorry to interrupt. You, we're recording a, a podcast. Is there any way... Uh, how long are you going to be around? It's just a bit of background noise. Is that all right? Yes. Thank Sorry you. about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just Sorry. we just said we found the quietest point, and we were like, yes, and then it's like, oh shit. <laughs> Sorry, girl. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
thank, thank you so much. Thank you. If you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah, <laughs> well done, you. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See McDonald's.com. And there it is. That's as good as it gets on this stage. Nissan Townstar EV strikes again. It's an unstoppable van. Unstoppable. Look, just fantastic. You can actually see the ProPilot technology in action. Effortless parallel parking. It moves with all the confidence that comes with a five-year warranty. And with a bench full of all-star van experts, there's real strength in depth here. That's all-star quality. Search Nissan Townstar EV and visit your local all-star van centre to see for yourself. Terms and conditions apply. Five years or 100,000 miles, whichever comes first. ProPilot is an advanced driver assist technology. Driver's responsibility to stay alert, drive safely, and control vehicle at all times. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.